BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in deepest, darkest Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure. Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black. Southern Gentleman is Returning for a moment, at least, to last week's episode, when uh, I was talking about the song Tainted Love and how that could be an appropriate thematic hypothesis for Wuthering Heights. And then, uh, of course, somebody mentioned, well, what about the song Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush? And look, I will admit to you that I did not know the song Wuthering Heights before starting to read Wuthering Heights. And then it got popular uh, because of Stranger Things. And I realized I had heard it before, but I've never been a Kate Bush guy. People love Kate Bush I have never quite been able to get on that particular crazy train. I'm not saying Kate Bush is crazy. I don't know enough enough about her to say, but uh, her voice to me is a little kooky. Um, Maybe that's by design. I don't know. You know, she's kind of like, um, you know, she's like an ethereal Laurie Anderson, who I also was never quite able to get into, although I think I like Laurie Anderson better than I like Kate Bush. It's not a competition. But, you know, there's that whole kind of, uh, you know, very cerebral, very, oh, I don't know, what's the word? White? (laughs) There's a very kind of white pop cerebral sensibility that I've never quite been able to wrap my head around. David Byrne also falls into this camp, although... um, Maybe I like him a little bit better. Though, like, am I ever, like, breaking out David Byrne albums to listen to? Not really. No. But the song Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush, I was like, well, maybe I should take a look at the lyrics just to see, like, exactly what it is that is uh, Wuthering... Like, why did she call it Wuthering Heights? And it turns out it's because it's literally the story of Wuthering Heights. Out on the wily, windy moors, we'd roll and fall in green... You had a temper like my jealousy. Too hot, too greedy. How could you leave me when I needed to possess you? I hated you. I loved you too. And then uh, it goes on in the chorus. Heathcliff, it's me, I'm Kathy. I've come home, I'm so cold. 
let me in a your window. In a your window. Heathcliff, it's me. I'm Kathy. I've come home. I'm so cold. Let me in a your window. So far be it from me, far be it from me to criticize the lyrics of Wuthering Heights, the very popular, well-loved song by Kate Bush. But this is, um, they're dumb. They're dumb lyrics. I mean, it's just a, it's just a note version of the book or of the relationship, but it's, but it's, uh, it, 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 it I will say this, it speaks to my problem with this book. And I wonder if my problem with the book is also a problem I'm having with myself. I'm not even quite sure what I mean by that, other than this book is about, as we say, tainted love. It is about um, codependency and bilious behavior that this kind of code dependency creates problem as i have identified it is that it romanticizes this behavior and the song too romanticizes this behavior it romanticizes abuse and codependency and just psychological terrorism and so when I say I might have a problem with it because I have a problem with me, I think it kind of speaks to something uh, a little bit deeper in my psyche about how I'm sort of struggling to articulate this because it's, it's, it's half-baked at best because I'm literally just kind of talking off the dome here. But a lot of the things that I'm interested in in my career and in my work have to do with the, these very notions, these notions of men and women and the way they relate to each other, in the way they talk to each other or talk past each other about gender roles and gender norms, um, and the way and, 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 and a particular peak that I have. Is that a word? Can I use that? Am I using that word correctly? A peak, a feeling of irritation, yes, or resentment resulting from a slight, especially to one's pride. Thank you, research machine. A certain kind of peak I have, uh, as I have, that 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 nags at me to this day, which probably stems from my teenage years, my adolescence, when I first recognized, as so many nice boys have recognized that girls often don't care for nice boys, that they are drawn so often to uh, bad boys. And even that term, bad boys, connotes a certain kind of eroticism and romanticism that I think I know to be misplaced. There is in allure to the danger, I, sus- I suspect, of bad boys. Um, 
But that allure quickly dissipates, I think, in reality, when you are confronted with the kind of abuse that Heathcliff piles upon Kathy. And, you know, I see this with my own kid, you know, who is a nice guy and, and I think really struggles with how to approach girls because, because the culture is so complicated and so delicate. And he is not a particularly forceful personality. And I think has a hard time trying to understand how to navigate through the brambles and thorns of the current socio-sexual climate. Whereas the bad boys, the aggressive boys, don't really worry too much about that. And in fact, they thumb their nose at it and uh, speak of it with scorn. In the short term, I suppose, that probably is a pretty good dating strategy. In the long term, it is probably not a good strategy for happiness, either uh, happiness and contentedness with yourself or with your partner and with your partner's feelings of contentment and happiness with you. All that to say, you know, I think this is a kind of facile, when I say it, I mean Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush, a kind of facile reading of the book, I'm Coming Back, Love, Cruel Heathcliff, My One Dream, My Only Master. And maybe maybe it does actually speak to something a little bit richer than I'm giving it credit for, which is this. There are There is a kind of person for whom the idea of subservience and dominance is actually quite appealing, and maybe this was the relationship between Heathcliff. Well, it wasn't. It just wasn't. I was going to say maybe they had a kind of dom-sub relationship, but they didn't because she would give it as much as she would take it. It was just an abusive relationship. Like you want to say Wuthering Heights might be the first contemporary BDSM novel, and I think maybe that is correct. It is a novel about the romanticization of abuse. It's a it's a book about abuse, and maybe, maybe... It, it, maybe it's falling short a little bit for me because it seems to land on the side of abuse. Like we recognize that these characters are unhappy and yet we find ourselves still drawn to them. There is, even at the late date, we're about to start chapter 20. Six of Wuthering Heights, even at this late date in the book, there is a part of me too, the romantic part of me too, that thinks, oh, I can change him. I can change him. There is something golden that still sparkles in him. And if I could just scrub away the grime, I could discover it anew. But that is not the case. And when we position ourselves as saviors of another, we are, of course, doomed to fail. Now, I'm not saying that Emily Bronte is looking for Heathcliff to be saved, but I suspect that the reaction to Heathcliff over the centuries, uh, particularly from a certain kind of young lass, has been, I can save him. And that is why he persists as an object of romantic desire, though he deserves it not at all. (sighs) You know, 
I don't normally like to talk this much before I get into the book. I did it last week. I'm doing it this week. But it's, you know, it's nagging at me. What the hell is this book about? I've been trying to wrap my head around that from the moment we began. And, uh, you know, I think I'm a little closer to understanding it. But I'm not closer to understanding the reaction to it. But let's pick it up, as I said, with chapter 26, Wuthering Heights. Last time we spoke, Edgar had sort of given permission for Linton and Kathy Jr. to get together, just not at Wuthering Heights. Um, Edgar's sick, Linton is sick, everybody's sick. You know, everybody's going to die. You know, you know, comet's going to come down, blow the whole thing to smithereens or some damn thing. I don't know. Okay, so this is still uh, this is still Mrs. Dean narrating. Summer was already past its prime when Edgar reluctantly yielded his assent to to their entreaties. And Catherine and I set out on our first ride to join her cousin. It was a close, sultry day, devoid of sunshine, but with a sky too dappled and hazy to threaten rain, and our place of meeting had been fixed at the guidestone by the crossroads. On arriving there, however, a little herd boy, dispatched as a messenger, told us that— now, uh, interesting just interesting uh, spelling of dispatched as despatch, D-E-S— Dispatched as a messenger, told us that Master Layton were just at this side the heights, and he'd be much obliged to join to us to gang on a bit further. Uh, then Master Linton has forgot the first injunction of his uncle. I observed he bid us keep on the Grange land, and here we are, off at once. Well, we'll turn our horses' heads round when we reach him. Answered my companion, our excursion shall lie towards home. But when we reached him, and that was scarcely a quarter of a mile from his own door, we found he had no horse, and we were forced to dismount and leave ours to graze. He lay on the heath, awaiting our approach, and did not rise till we came within a few yards. Then he walked so feebly, and looked so pale, that I immediately exclaimed, Why, Master Heathcliff, you are not fit for enjoying a ramble this morning. Oh, they're rambling. God damn them in their ramblings. Ramble. How ill you do look. Catherine surveyed him with grief and astonishment and changed the ejaculation of joy on her lips to one of alarm and the congratulation on their long postponed meeting to an anxious inquiry whether he were worse than usual. No, better. "'Better,' he panted, trembling, and retaining her hand as if he needed its support, while his large blue eyes wandered timidly over her, the hollowness round them transforming to haggard wildness the languid expression they once possessed. "'But you have been worse,' persisted his cousin, "'worse than when I saw you last. You are thinner, and I'm tired.' He interrupted hurriedly. It is too hot for walking. Let us rest here. And in the morning, I often feel sick. Papa says I grow so fast. Badly satisfied, Kathy sat down, and he reclined beside her. This is something like your paradise, said she, 
making an effort at cheerfulness. You recollect the two days we agreed to spend in the place and weigh each thought pleasantest? This is nearly yours. Only there are clouds, but then they are so soft and mellow. It is nicer than sunshine. Next week, if you can, we'll ride down to the Grange Park and try mine. Linton did not appear to remember what she talked of, and he had evidently great difficulty in sustaining any kind of conversation. His lack of interest in the subjects she started, and his equal incapacity to contribute to her entertainment, were so obvious that she could not conceal her disappointment. An indefinite alteration had come over his whole person and manner. The pettishness that might be caressed into fondness had yielded to a listless apathy. There was less of the peevish temper of a child which frets and teases on purpose to be soothed, and more of the self-absorbed moroseness of a confirmed invalid, repelling consolation and ready to regard the good-humored mirth of others as an insult. So, yeah, I mean, it looks like, it sounds like he's taken a turn for the worse. Sounds like he's right there hovering on death's door. Such a shame. Such a shame that the only heir of Heathcliff and his, uh, his unloved bride is has got one foot in the grave. So let's take a moment or two to pre-grieve his death. And we will return in a moment here on Obscure. Back on Obscure, pondering Kate Bush and her song, Wuthering Heights, and how it relates to the book. And, you know, thinking about it further, just for a second, it is interesting to me that that the song, the lyrics, are really just about that front half of the book, because this really is kind of two books. And I think that the popular book, I think, is really the first one. And the second one, nobody really talks about. Nobody really talks about the relationship between Kathy Jr. and Linton and Herden because it's just not that compelling. Because all of them are, are basically being, you know, pulled on strings. They're marionettes. And Heathcliff, who is the most compelling character in the book, has long basically faded from. What is that sound? Oh dear, somebody going to be... What is that? I don't know if you can hear that. Some sort of motor sound. Uh, sounded like maybe somebody was going to do some leaf blowing or some snow blowing, even though there's no snow here. Anyway, it, it has retreated, so we can continue. He's, he's retreated into the shadows, the most compelling character of the book. And so we're left with stupid Linton and stupid Kathy Jr. and Mrs. Dean telling us the whole deal. But, you know, the, the real drama of the book has has uh, departed stage right. I'm, I'm imagining he'll return fairly soon. Anyway, back to the book. Catherine perceived, as well as I did, that he held it rather a punishment than a gratification to endure our company, and she made no scruple of proposing presently to depart. That proposal, unexpectedly, roused Linton from his lethargy and threw him into a strange state of agitation. He glanced fearfully towards the heights, begging she would remain another half hour. At least, well, has Heathcliff threatened him in some manner to secure a promise from his cousin of matrimony or of 
uh, you know, a return visit or something, it seems as though Heathcliff is paying, playing some part in this, unseen though it may be. But I think, said Cathy, you'd be more comfortable at home than sitting here, and I cannot amuse you today. I see by my tales and songs the chatter. You have grown wiser than I in these six months. You have little taste for my diversions now, or else if I could amuse you, I'd willingly stay. Stay to rest yourself, he replied, and Catherine, don't think or say that I'm very unwell. It is the heavy weather and heat that make me dull, and I walked about before you came a great deal. For me, tell uncle I'm in tolerable health, will you? I walked a great, I walked a great deal for me. <laughs> I took ten steps, and I had to sit down, catch my breath, have an enema or some damn thing. I'll tell him that you say so, Linton. I couldn't affirm that you are, observed my young lady, wondering at his pertinacious assertion of what was evidently an untruth. And be here again next Thursday, continued he, shunning her puzzled gaze, and give him my thanks for permitting you to come. My best thanks, Catherine, and and if you did meet my father, and he asked you about me, don't lead him to suppose that I've been extremely silent and stupid. Don't look sad and downcast as you are doing. He'll be angry. I care nothing for his anger, exclaimed Cathy, imagining she would be its object. But I do, said her cousin, shuddering. Don't provoke him against me, Catherine, for he is very hard. Is he severe to you, Master Heathcliff? I inquired. Has he grown weary of indulgence and passed from passive to active hatred? Well, that's not a thing you say to the kid's son, Mrs. Dean. Okay, yes. Is he, is he severe to you? Sure. But then you don't, you don't add on. Has he gone from passive to active hatred? You know, I don't care. I don't care who you are. You don't tell somebody's kid that their parent hates them, whether it be true or not. Linton looked at me, but did not answer. And after keeping her seat by his side another ten minutes, during which his head fell drowsily on his breast, and he uttered nothing except suppressed moans of exhaustion or pain, Cathy began to seek solace and looking for bilberries, and sharing the produce of her researches with me. She did not offer them to him, for she saw further notice, would only weary and annoy. It is half an hour now, Ellen, she whispered in my ear at last. I can't tell why we should stay. He's asleep, and Papa will be wanting us back. Well, we must not let him asleep, I answered. Wait till he wakes, and be patient. You are mighty eager to set off, but you're longing to see poor Linton, has soon evaporated. Why did he wish to see me? returned Catherine, in his crossest humours formerly. I liked him better than I do in his present curious mood. It's just as if it were a task he was compelled to perform, this interview for fear his father should scold him. But I'm hardly going to come to give Mr. Heathcliff pleasure, whatever reason he may have for ordering Linton to undergo this penance. And though I'm glad he's better in health, I'm sorry he's so much less pleasant and so much less affectionate to me. You think he's in better health then, I said. Yes, she answered, because he always made such a great deal of his sufferings, you know. He is not tolerably well, as he told me to tell Papa. Papa? 
I'm, I wish to tell you, Papa, he is not tolerably well. But he's not better, very likely. There you differ with me, Miss Cathy, I remarked. I should conjecture him to be far worse. Linton here started from his slumber in bewildered terror and asked if anyone had called his name. No, said Catherine, unless in dreams. I cannot conceive how you managed to doze out of doors in the morning. Well, you've never met me, Cathy, because I can scarcely keep myself awake, particularly late in, late in the morning and early afternoon. Now I'm recording this right now at 1.51 p.m., and I would be lying to all of you if I told you I hadn't been thinking about napping because I have been. I've been thinking, how much longer do I have to read? Because I want to go take a goddamn nap. Because, here in deepest, darkest Savannah, like in all other places, I just, you know, I get sleepy at this time of day. This is my sleepy time of day, I will say. Late at night is when I'm most awake. Like, I can drive, for example, for hours late at night. But if you put me in, in behind a, a steering wheel from, let's say, 1130 till about 2.30 in the afternoon, I'm as like as not to fall asleep at the wheel. I say that without exaggeration. I will fall asleep at the wheel. I often have to pull over and nap uh, during this time of day if I'm not careful or drinking inordinate amounts of caffeine. I thought I heard my father, he gasped, glancing up to the frowning nab above us. Are you sure nobody spoke? Now, what's a nab? That's a word I don't know. N-A-B. Let me crank up the research machine again. The frowning nab above us. Catch. Oh, if you catch someone doing something wrong. Well, that's not what I'm looking for. Uh, that's uh, that's nabbing, like we nab somebody. But the the that's that's the that's the modern definition. Uh, the frowning nab above us in Old English. What does it mean? doesn't seem to apprehend. Where's the noun version of it? The, 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 the frowning. Oh, this is frustrating. I'm not, I'm not getting a good definition within Wuthering Heights. Or, you know, within with that... Uh, that uh, perhaps it's an alteration of the English dialect nap. Okay, so wait, hold on a second. I thought I heard my father, he gasped, glancing up to the frowning nab above us. I don't know. We're going to move on. You are sure nobody spoke? Quite sure, replied his cousin. Only Ellen and I were disputing concerning your health. Are you truly stronger, Linton, than when we separated in winter? If you be, I'm certain one thing is not stronger, your regard for me. Speak, are you? The tears gushed from Linton's eyes as he answered, Yes, yes, I am. And still under the spell of the imaginary voice, his gaze wandered up and down to detect its owner. Kathy rose. For today we must part, she said, and I won't conceal that I've been sadly disappointed with our meeting, though I'll mention it to nobody but you. Not that I stand in awe of Mr. Heathcliff, nor should you. Kathy. Hush, murmured Linton, for God's sake, hush, he's coming. And he clung to Catherine's arm, striving to detain her. But at that announcement, she hastily disengaged herself and whistled to Minnie, 
who obeyed like a dog. Wouldn't that be neat to have a horse who just comes trotting over like a dog when you whistle? Oh boy, that would be neat. I've seen such things in Western films, but I've uh, never seen it in real life. It's it's neat though. Sometimes when you get up early in the morning and you head out to the stables, as I do, uh, the horses will come over to see if you've got some apples or carrots in your hand, but but uh, never just by whistling. Okay, and then she, okay, so then Minnie came, and then uh, she says, I'll be here next Thursday, she cried, springing to the saddle. Goodbye. Quick, Ellen. And so we left him, scarcely conscious of our departure. So absorbed was he in anticipating his father's approach. Before we reached home, Catherine's displeasure softened into a perplexed sensation of pity and regret, largely blended with vague, uneasy doubts about Linton's actual circumstances, physical and social, in which I partook, though I counseled her not to say much, for a second journey would make us better judges. I mean, this is just, it's tedious, for God's sake. It's tedious. You know, she's con- Bronte here is constantly contriving to bring them together and separate them and bring them together, and it's tedious. Because nothing seems to be happening. Nothing much is transpiring. The plot is not moving forward. Their relationship really has not developed from the first time they met. My master requested an account of our ongoings. His nephew's offering of thanks was duly delivered, Miss Cathy gently touching on the rest. I also threw little light on his inquiries, for I hardly knew what to hide and what to reveal. End of chapter 26. I love it. I love these little chapters that are just pocket-sized enough for the purposes of our podcast. I love that we just, we read a whole little chapter and then we're done. My God, it's very satisfying. Very satisfying indeed. So yeah, that's where we are. That's where we'll leave it, Um, you know, with this tedium of waiting for Linton Heathcliff to drop dead or, you know, have his head chopped off by his father and thrown on the lawn of Thrushcross Grange or some such thing. So you can forgive Heathcliff maybe as a romantic for his abuses towards Kathy Sr. in the sense that like, yeah, they're both kind of shitheads to each other. And, you know, they, as, uh, as Kate Bush says, you know, they, uh, she loves him. She hates him. Uh, why do you, you know, I need you. You possess me. You leave me. I'm coming after you. Let me in the window. Blah, 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 blah. Like typical romantic adolescent bullshit. But where you cannot forgive him, nor should you, in this host's opinion, is in his execrable, 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 ex- <laughs> execrable, is that the, is that the word I'm looking for? execrable, execrable uh, treatment of his own flesh and blood, his own son, not to mention his abuse of uh, Hareton Earnshaw, which maybe we can understand a little bit better, but it is his treatment of his own son that is most disgusting. And he's doing it really for his own selfish and... I mean, petty ends, really petty. He just wants to control. He wants to be lord and master of these moors so he can ramble upon them 
as its undisputed king. Well, whatever. It just seems so lame, you know, that that's his goal. He's trying to fill the hole in his heart, you know, like we all are. But he's he's just shoveling nuclear waste into there, into that chamber, thinking that'll fill it. Well, it will, but it'll also poison everything and leave his entire being uninhabitable. So that's where we'll leave it with, uh, you know, Kate Bush still ringing in our ears and bringing our contemporary gender politics and mores to this 19th century American novel. We'll pick it up again next time on another new wave episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and the great Robin Lynn. Our theme song is by Craig Wedren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support. So please, go to patreon.com slash Black. sign up. There's all kinds of fun stuff. There's goodies. You could join the book club where we get together. We talk about the book that we're reading. Uh, and it's just a fun community. So, you know, head on over to patreon.com slash Black. And I will see you next time.